Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Um, so okay, so I thought today went very well, Jane, and yes. you must get your comrex installed because uh, it'll make things so much easier for you. I've already asked. Apparently, at one yeah. point I thanked you, which I've never done before, and I certainly won't be doing again. So, um, that's, <laughs> we're, we're, welcome to off air. This is Fee and I just having a very ta- technical chat about uh, a new way of working, uh, which we did did today using some new equipment. And Fee was at home, I was at work, and it sort of was okay. But I'd still rather you were here because it's just more fun. Yeah. Um, oh no, I'd much rather come in actually, um, just because I obviously I miss your warmth, Jane, mm. and humour. Um, yes. But it's quite. It feels quite remote, and it's just. It is just a bit back to lockdown mentality. It's. I. I I'm so happy to be able to come back into work just as soon as I can. Yes. Okay. Well, look, yeah. everything crossed, and you'll feel a bit better, a bit more like it next yep. week. Also, yes. I've got to say, yeah. uh, Foodie Thursday is not one to miss. Hannah Evans brought in these mince pies today and I like a mince pie but um the alternative ones that she had with her today there was one that was flaky pastry and it was filled with clotted cream and sultanas and brandy and it was horribly indulgent in a truly wonderful way it probably cost about 150 quid um just for one of them but they were beautiful and I I love that about this time of year although as I say I I realize it's not even December yet (laughs) not quite and we seem to be got do you think we've just gone early this year it feels like it to me no I think we always go early but can I can I just be a little bit more detailed on that mince pie where's the mincy bit so it's just cream and sultanas and flaky pastry yeah it was like a cream horn croissant type thing with croissant croissant with a with a christmas hint oh eve said there was a layer of fruit i don't know i'm sorry i'm I'm... okay Uh, and we should say that uh, today uh, has been notable for a number of um well let's be honest about it celebrity deaths and i'm just looking at um the images of shane mcgowan all over all over the big screens the pogues lead singer and um, Fairy Tale of New York is, by some margin, the greatest Christmas song. And now, isn't it just, now yeah. neither of them are here, and it's it's sad, isn't it? Well, it is sad, but what an enormous contribution to have made to the musical landscape. Uh, you know, for a guy who, let's be honest about it, just piled so much stuff on himself. It's amazing that he didn't lose his talent in the midst of all of that. And I know that he wasn't exactly performing at his finest for the last decade or so of his life, but actually that's quite a testament to a rock and roll life, isn't it? And to leave something behind that's so beautiful, you've got to be proud of that. I thought the other people we talked about today who had died were very interesting too, Jane. Henry Kissinger, he died at the age of 100, I didn't know that much about his diplomatic career because actually in my lifetime, I think I've caught him more 
in fiction mm. than I have in fact. You know, the, when he's been played in a slightly kind of fictional capacity in movies about American administrations, notably Nixon. And I mean, the world of diplomacy, Jane, do you think you'd excel at it? It seems to depend an awful lot on just do what the blooming hell you want to do (laughs) and just hoping the other side don't notice. That seemed to be a bit of his MO. Yes, yeah, he was... uh, I mean, I'm just about old enough to remember him featuring very regularly in the television news, for example. So I would know his name, but in truth, you have to be quite a lot older than me to remember him being in power. So I guess if you are going to live... But there's a picture of him. There's a picture of him today Mm. sitting with Donald Trump, who apparently wasn't particularly keen to hear the wise words of a near-centenarian politician. So you think, God, he really has straddled some eras. Oh, yeah, I think he had... I think everybody took his calls, let's put it that way. Uh, But there are some incredible people who've been Secretary of State in America, aren't there? I mean, Madeleine Albright was an amazing, amazing woman. Uh, And then Anthony Blinken, who is Biden's Secretary of State, he seems to be such an accomplished, highly intelligent bloke. Um, These people never... They never go go for high office. They don't actually ever run for president. I know Madeleine Albright wasn't born in America, so she couldn't, I don't think. But... um, it's strange, isn't it? They seem to be in a different category altogether. We must ask our American listeners to tell us about why these people don't get to be actually running the joint, because some of them seem incredibly able. Yes, but I think, uh, wouldn't it be fair to say that you make as many enemies as you do friends when you're at that high level of office, and maybe just walking across the corridor to the big, big office is far more treacherous than we might imagine. Well, maybe they're yes, not I'm party politicians. I don't, I don't even know. Are they just chosen because they're yeah. very brainy? I've, no, I've got absolutely no idea. Well, we'll definitely take on, and I need to apologise. I need to massively, massively apologise because I've ruined Bake Off for quite a few listeners, and I didn't mean to do that, obviously, and I just didn't even... I thought because it was yesterday, Mm. uh, by the time we talked about it in the UK, that it would have buzzed all the way around the world on social media platforms uh, that one of the blokes had won. I'm not even (laughs) going to say his name now, Jane. Just the fear of retribution. But I would like to apologise because I know that that really does ruin it for some people. So I'm really sorry. It just slipped out. I didn't mean to. Well, uh, some people get their jeopardy in a show about cake and we have to uh, we have to accept that. I must admit, I I share your bafflement as to why it (laughs) means means so much. It's a lovely show. I haven't actually watched it this season, so I, I can't really. And the other sadness is that Shetland has totally lost it. It's um, oh Shetland! It's God jumped Jane. the what do you call it? It's jumped the what? What's it done? Well, it, 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 the the phrase has jumped the shark, but this this series has jumped the sheep. I don't want to see a plot involving some kind of satanic abuse of sheep. I mean, I really, really don't. I really don't. You've Jane, changed, me. You, you really have. <laughs> it used to be the kind of thing you really enjoyed, but but not it's anymore. Okay. Terrible. <laughs> I tell you what, we had quite a few emails as well wanting to hear more reviews done by Ray. Oh, Ray's reviews, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I spoke to the great man uh, last night, and it, once I'd explained what off air is, um, he seemed mildly interested in doing more uh, for it. 
Um, I think he should. Yeah. Do you think he could start by watching Channel 4's A Couple Next Door? No, I don't want to think about my parents watching that. Uh, Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, He did think another trip to the cinema was unlikely in the next three or four years, so that slightly limits his potential to take over from Mark (laughs) Commode. But he could review... uh, He's probably happiest reviewing Liverpool versus whoever they're playing next, but I'm not going to let him do that. So I am going to set him a task, because apart from anything else... It keeps him away from bothering my mother, so that might not be such yeah. a bad thing. So we look forward to Ray's reviews. Probably in a couple of weeks he'll come up with something else. Perhaps he could review our so family Christmas. How about that? Maybe we'll find some very, very long movies for him to go and review. <laughs> Dances with Wolves. Let's start with that, Ray. I'd say my, my problem with uh, The Couple Next Door, which mm. I started watching on your recommendation, yes. Gav, yes. is I don't want to see Hugh Dennis doing that. No, because I, he will uh, always be the dad and outnumbered. To me. <laughs> so horrific. To see him doing I have to say though um, that it's it's a very silly show with lots of sex in it, and it's just ridiculous. It's set in it's supposed to be oh, in it's Leeds. Got terrible, it's got terrible sex in it, Jane. There isn't a single person in that drama who is appealing or sexy. And the idea that they can't keep their hands off each other is just preposterous. <laughs> but Absolutely preposterous. Don't you like the police motorcyclist when it's when it's raining on his T-shirt? No, I don't. Okay. Because I don't know. He's no stranger to the wax bar, that gentleman, and I'm not having any of it. <laughs> anyway, it's on Channel 4, 9 o'clock. Uh, or you could find it on... Is it all four? Yeah. Uh, that's not a recommendation from either of us. Uh, it's just to say that it's available on... All four, uh, and it's it's sort of a drama, but um, I mean it's hard. It's yes, I I don't understand it really. <laughs> but anyway, um, right. Uh, this is from oh Evelyn, who said I enjoyed Jane's dad's review, uh, but I was shocked that he had to pay to go to the toilet. I realised my mistake when I thought about his next sentence and that he won by a short head. I do have a tendency to take things very literally or to choose an alternate meaning of words. Okay, I thought his review was sharp and to the point, unlike, I'm assuming from the review, his film. Um, Evelyn's got a a beef with you as well, actually. I was really surprised, she says, at Fee's reluctance to go to the (laughs) theatre, despite several positive experiences. It would explain why you never reference the astonishing National Theatre production of that thing I can't say, Prima... Uh, is it? Uh, in it, a face eye? Yeah, it Fassie. was... I don't know. It was a one-woman performance by Jodie Comer. Uh, the National Theatre live transmissions are amazing, enabling a huge number of people to see fantastic productions without the expense of getting to London. The service is also available at home, which would solve Fee's itchy bum problem. How did you know about that? Honestly, you're missing some amazing performances. Well, yeah, that's you no, told. I'm, I'm sure, yep, yeah, I'm sure you're right. And I do keep remembering things that I've seen at the theatre that I've actually really enjoyed. So I'm just, uh, I'm just being silly. Uh, can I read winning pickup lines and the cities yeah. that rely on them the most? It's, it's an email that came into our inbox. It's not from a person, a listener. It's from a PR company, but it's so funny. Cheeky devils. I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of saying what company it is, but they've done. Uh, Top 10 pickup lines Mm -hmm. and the probability of these working on females. That's what this says. Females. And the probability, females, and the probability of it working on males. Would you like a couple of them? Uh, Well, will they be aimed at females? Well, they're aimed at anybody, and then I'll give you the probability. Uh, Aside from being sexy, what do you do for a living? 
that would work on 20% of females and probably 20% of males. Uh, are you from Tennessee? Because you're the only 10 I see. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I know. Is, they get better. Is your name Wi-Fi? Because I'm feeling a connection. Uh, if you were a vegetable, you'd be a cute cumber. Do you have a name or can I call you mine? Oh, my goodness. Well, that's yeah. appalling. Uh, and the uh, in at number 10, it, this is just dreadful. I don't believe that anyone's ever said this. Do you have a map? Because I keep getting lost in your eyes. Well, that's that's now, can, that's a yeah. Channel 4 drama right there, isn't it? Um, OK, uh, horrific. And can I just... I don't know, genuinely, I don't know where that email came from. Is it a product? Is it a service? Is it a company? Would I recognise it? Uh, you would recognise it. And it's from a company that we have... The, the genre of which we have specifically asked not to get involved in our programme. OK, right. I think I know where you're coming from. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, the big guest this afternoon is Kate Atkinson, the writer, and we'll hear from her in a moment or two. Uh, Dear Fee and Jane, says Alexis, I've written many an email to you in my head over the years, but I've finally been inspired to type something up as it covers godparent gifts and touches on one of the contentious issues between you. Brace yourself, Fee. Alexis yeah. says, I am 48, and my lovely godmother still gives me a birthday present, but she's never given Christmas gifts. Every year she asks what I'd like, and we comment on how much faster birthdays are coming around. As a granddaughter of a man called Arthur Wood, my godmother gets a share of the royalties from Fee, the Archer's theme tune. Oh, oh. Da, 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 da. No! I've no idea how much people get for that kind of thing or how many relatives she shares it with. But when I was at art college, she used to give me £150 a term from her Archer's Fund for books, particularly wow. encouraging me to buy exhibition catalogues. So I like to think my book collection is an Archer's funded library. Via my lovely godmother, of course, says Alexis. I think that's a lovely story. And that also, I mean, even Fee will admit, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I've always been... I mean, to be honest, I hadn't even thought about who composed the Archer's theme tune. But the idea that some people are still benefiting financially from it, that's remarkable. It's shocking. <laughs> it's not shocking. It's wonderful. Isn't it true that uh, Happy Birthday, you know, Happy Birthday to you was written by yeah. a couple of American sisters. Is that right? I think you're right. And they... Because didn't they go to court in their... Um, uh, uh, I think quite early on in their lifetime to try and get some kind of royalties for it because it was being sung everywhere. Uh, do you know what? It'd be worth looking that up, maybe even doing it as a little feature because, uh, obviously, when you sing it to somebody round at your house, mm. you don't pay anybody anything. No. And... I don't know, does... Yeah, well, let's look into that, Jane, because otherwise we're both just talking rather randomly without any well, fact attached I, to it. We don't want to start doing that, do we? I mean, I thought my foray <laughs> into American politics a couple of minutes ago was absolutely fascinating, if somewhat ill-informed. <laughs> no, I think it was very convincing. <laughs> so let's not let the mask slip on happy birthday. <laughs> 
Hello. Uh, hi, Jane and Fee. Is there a chance you could make a little space on Off Air to talk about non-traditional Christmases? I don't see anything of my own experience being reflected in all the marketing or on social media. I'm single, mid-30s and have no family and can deal with this pretty well through most of the year, but Christmas does just get to me. To make it worse, I'm a musician, so I've been doing Christmassy stuff at work since September. <laughs> what do other people do to make it their own and ignore all the hype? Past options for me have included having COVID, not keen to repeat that one, nope. volunteering, doing a traditional Christmas all by myself, and doing nothing at all but nothing sits right my friends and my family but of course they have their own to go and see at this time of year uh, thank you and please keep me anonymous we're very happy to do that but that is a great call out because I reckon there are lots of people listening who do Christmas a little bit differently apart from anything else I really hope that we do have quite a lot of people listening who don't celebrate Christmas at all yeah. uh, who come from other faiths other religions and for them it's just you know not a really big deal so it'd be really interesting to know and as those statistics creep up about blended families people not having families at all that kind of stuff uh, and the melting pot that is the UK there just must be so many other things that people are doing and enjoying so you don't have to feel that Christmas kind of locks you out because that is dreadful I think as well um, many of us have just been through you know bog average Christmases and often Christmases that can be I don't know just slightly impacted by maybe somebody being ill and I don't mean seriously ill I would hope it wouldn't be that although of course in some cases it can be but just people with sore throats in bed throat infections laryngitis a norovirus as we were talking about on the program today um there's such a build-up particularly when you have small children I remember so many of my Christmases when the kids were very young that were just dominated by Calpol. You know, we just needed to go out and get Calpol or somebody, you know, somebody was being, you know, we know what they were probably doing, um, whether or not we should get the bucket, all of these sorts of things. Um, it's not always it's not always picture perfect, your Christmas, is it, for a multitude of reasons? No, but I'd be really interested to hear from people who just just make an, you know, an active choice to go and do something different mm. and what it is that they go and do. Uh, because you're right to our correspondent, you know, we talk about Christmas in a pretty kind of uh, one dimensional way, don't we? We make assumptions about oh. everybody celebrating it and we're wrong to do that. Well, uh, we also had a thank you. Oh, yeah. what? Sorry, Diane. No, I was just going to yes. say, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Christmas Day is the longest day of the year. It just goes on and on and on. It's extraordinary. It does. Yes. Yeah. Carry on. Oh, no, well, we just uh, we just had a really nice thank you email. Uh, I wasn't expecting to be so emotional, but yesterday after listening to your show and podcast, I wanted to say that the kindness of listeners who took the time to send messages really meant something. The listener who suggested just sitting with the feelings and knowing that they will eventually pass was particularly helpful. So this is from our correspondent who started off our thread about what to do when life is just a bit shite. Mm. Listening to other people's experiences of life also helped me get some perspective and I hope the others who emailed in get some strength in knowing that there is a lovely little community out here of off-airers who are listening. What a lovely thing. Uh, and, you know, Jane and I, I think, don't say this all the time because it would just sound really saccharine um, and a little bit kind of self-aggrandising, which we don't want at all. But it is lovely that there's a community of people listening to off-air and we are very grateful, aren't we? And we always say that whenever we've done a live show, you look out across the audience and you think, I could go for a drink with every single one of you. 
uh, and we'd have a laugh, wouldn't we? So that well, is a very nice thing. It is true. I mean, we would go for a drink with every single one of you, but we wouldn't buy you all a drink. I just want to make that very clear, just in case people think that's an offer. <laughs> Um, it, it isn't an offer. Uh, I'll buy the drinks. And um, on a, a similar a similar vein, um, we've had another email, which I, I won't read out, actually, um, in its entirety, but it's from a listener who, who just does, uh, frankly, run through some of the incredibly difficult uh, situations she has found herself in over the last 18 months. There's such a lot going on in this, this woman's life. Um, and I just want to say to her, I have, I've read the email, I'm sure Fee has as well, and um, I can only hope that things get things get better for you. She does say, sometimes a hug or an invitation for a coffee or an update on somebody else's life, um, good or bad, because I have found that people shy away from telling you their troubles, is exactly what is needed. My life is my life. Your life is yours. Share experiences, good and bad. It's what makes us a community, says that anonymous listener. So, oh dear, Fee, my voice is going. <clears throat> That'll be because I've really worked this week. I know you oh, have, actually. <laughs> You've had to put in the hours, and I'm sorry that I haven't been there uh, as backup. Uh, and I do hope that normal service resumes next week. Well, I did feel something coming on first thing this morning, and I did oh, take a Barocca. No. no, I did. I took a Barocca. No. Oh, no, don't get this, Jane. Don't Please don't get this. No, no, I haven't it's got really that. It's unpleasant. No, no, no. No, OK. No. But you know when you just wake up and you think, oh, I'm so depleted. I'd better just take a Barocca. That'll boost me up. Yeah. Anyway, it did. Uh, so the interview today is with Kate Atkinson. It was a mango flavour, though. Not my favourite. Uh, big interview today is with Kate Atkinson. Um, she is such a good writer. She won the Whitbread Book of the Year for her very first novel, Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Uh, she's the creator of the Jackson Brody series of crime stories. Although, as she'll explain in this interview, her first ever literary success came courtesy of Woman's Own magazine. Uh, she specialises in twisty tales that make demands on the reader but in a thoroughly good, good way. Now, her recent novel, Shrines of Gaiety, is set in the clubs of Soho in 1926, and trust me, Soho was wilder then than it is now by some margin. And she has a new collection of short stories out too called Normal Rules Don't Apply. And this collection of short stories starts with a tale around the void, an apocalyptic event. I asked Kate how she'd achieved her trademark style. Well... If I knew the formula, obviously, or not that it's a formula, but if I knew how to do that, then I could obviously be a very rich woman because I'd be selling. I don't know. I think I have, when I'm writing, I have a very intimate connection with the words. You know, it's a, a, a very, very much... My brain becomes quite isolated, I think. It's just me and the words and it's me and the book. And I think it's always been like that, I think. And also I'm very aware of what my voice sounds like to me. So I think, you know, up to a point it's been the same voice, for want of a better term, that was in behind the scenes. And I think it's just developed. And I think it's almost like me talking to me. But I was actually thinking the other day, I was thinking, would I like my books if I read them and I wasn't, and I hadn't written them. <laughs> and I actually don't know because there's a huge difference between writing and reading. And I said this once in uh, an event, and people were very irritated by the fact that I said, you know, reading and writing are completely different. They have nothing in common with each other. Obviously, they meet in the words, but they're such different activities. And I think 
Would I? I don't know. I'd well, love you, to be able to read it as someone else. Yes. Um, well, you're not. You're never going to have the experience. I'm never going to be able to do no. that because you have to be a different kind of reader. Because you have to read your own work when you're writing it, and you have to imagine what it's like to be a reader of it, and that kind of keeps you on track because you know you have to make sense, but you also have to be. I was thinking you have to be quite friendly as a writer, you know, and I think maybe that's what you're saying is that, that there's that intimacy. Well, there really is, because you, you you occasionally would just tell us, for example, in Shrines of Gaiety, that book is set in 1926 and it opens with a newspaper delivery boy oh, yes. and it closes with the same character, the boy, mm-hmm. and then you tell us... Everything he, in between. <laughs> that he basically, but that, but yes, we also learn in the mm-hmm. in the final. I think it's the final sentence of that book that he dies in the Second World War. He does, and for some reason, although this character doesn't really play a huge part in the book, I was stunned by that yeah, and good, felt good, incredibly good, sad. Good. I sound as if I'm listening to you telling me something I don't know because I forget <laughs> almost instantly that I've I've finished a book. I forget the characters' names. I forget what happens, and it's. It, I'm I'm not embarrassed by it because but but it is when you meet readers and they're going oh and you know when that blah 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 person and they do and I'm like really I think you're illustrating Kate there really is a difference between writers and readers <laughs> I'm appealed readers uh, remember writers yeah, well, don't. can we go right back to the beginning and I um your latest collection is a collection of, of short stories your mm. latest book is a collection of short mm. stories and your your very first foray into writing was to win a short story competition run by Woman's Own Woman's Own which I used to read always read my mum's copy of Woman's Mm -hmm. Own. What was your short story about? Um, It was called... Are you really asking me now? It was called In China, and it was about a girl called Madeline, and she was an adolescent teenager, and about... hmm, After that, I'm not sure. I think it was a sort of family thing, but it was interesting because it was the first thing I ever wrote that wasn't about me. I mean that kind of deep, I've got to get this out of me, I'm so wretched, you know, I need to put this into words kind of thing. And I'd been writing scatty bits of stuff before that, uh, you know, kind of tutoring myself, I suppose. I did a doctorate on a short story, so I was very aware of what a good story was. So I wasn't eager to... But also, a story's a great way to learn to write. So it was very much like, oh, you know, I'm a wretched person, you kind know, of thing. You get rid of all that biographical nonsense. Mm, mm. And and In China was the first thing I wrote. There was nothing to do with me. It was completely fictional. And probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because, I, the, you know, we'd been... I was getting kind of on my uppers by that point. I was really, like, needing money and I was more or less giving up all the little jobs I'd had. And the woman from Women's Oaks, she phoned me up and said, you've won this. And I just thought that's the best thing that's ever going to happen to me is that someone has said, you can write. Mm. And not just that you can write the biographical bits and pieces, you can actually write fiction. And from then on, I started writing for women's magazines, short stories. I loved writing short stories for women's magazines. I'm not sure that anybody really, apart from the People's Friend these days, actually publishes Gosh, that's stories. true, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, and that clearly helped you. Did you win money from Women's Own? I did win money and I... Well, don't worry too much because you're there. I won, I won a great big bag of goodies from a healthcare firm that was sponsoring. Did you? <laughs> Strepsils. Strepsils. Well, look, not to be sniffed at. Certainly not at this time of year. Um, then when you wrote um, Behind the Scenes at the Museum, mm. uh, that won a prize. That was your first novel. Yeah, that, that also. That won the Whitbread. Whitbread yes. prize. So you were then presumably brimming with confidence about your abilities. 
No, I wouldn't say that because, you, you know, you've got to write another novel and that's, you know, maybe you can only do it once. So you have to be able to do it twice at least. So that was, I'd already halfway through the second novel, Human Croquet, when I won the Whitbread. So at least I had that kind of basis to move forward on. I would say I didn't really become confident as a writer until I was somewhere around maybe the second Jackson Brodie novel. And those are your crime books. Those are crime books because yeah. I find that uh, the pattern of my writing seems to follow. The, it's the same every time. I get round about the middle of the book and I think, oh my God, this is, this is terrible. I can't do this. I'll never get to the end because I don't know how to make it work. It's about making it work work so it's like a puzzle and, and then I have a complete kind of mental breakdown while I try to reassemble it and make it work and to begin with that was terrible I mean I just thought oh my goodness what am I doing but now I just think oh yeah here we are this is the, this is the awful bit we'll, we've done it before we'll do it again so I do now have that kind of blasé confidence that I can right. get to the end of a book and I think that's you know reassuring for me and I suppose there's a, there'll come a day when I just think no can't do it and that'll be it but well it'll be a very sad day for those of us readers Kate <laughs> who enjoy what you do um Shrines of Gaiety if we can focus on that because that's your most recent novel. novel um it's set in 1926 it's about the London nightclub scene and it's about a woman called Nellie Coker who mm. runs a string of clubs and, well, she's up to all sorts mm. of stuff. But also, what absolutely intrigued me, and I know you do lots of research, is that for any young person who's going clubbing in London today, it's almost all been done before, hasn't it? Those, it has. Those, were, those yeah. were wild years. They were, no, they really were. They really were. People just completely... I think in the provinces, it must be have been very different. I don't think people in, you know, Sheffield and Doncaster were going, well, you know, we're going to be doing lots of cocaine and dancing the night away tonight. I think it's a very... <laughs> London-centric kind of scene. And it was interesting, because somebody said to me the other day, oh, it's not about the nightclubs. Everyone thinks it's about the nightclubs, but actually there's only one nightclub scene. And I thought, that's true. All the rest of it, he said to me, they're all during the daytime. There's all people going to look and see how the clubs are doing and, you know, totting up the drinks and everything. It's actually not that kind of, you know, bright young things, raving sort of scene. It's much more about the family mm. who who own the nightclubs. And the desire that Nellie Coker had to make her children respectable. Yeah, and, and you know, Nellie is based on a real person called Kate Merrick who also followed the same tra trajectory. And, uh, in fact, two of her daughters did man marry into the peerage and one of her sons became a novelist and was found on the pavement dead after he'd, you know, written a crime novel about... So, you know, this, these things are all very much mirrored in real life. But I have, I've read her autobiography, which clearly she didn't write on her own, and I just think she's one of these women who made her life up. Yeah. And you just have to kind of champion that because, you know, it's it's so bold, I think, to have, to have lived that kind of life. Just, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make an enormous amount of money and I'm going to be incredibly successful on the back of other people's need to... I guess they enjoy themselves to think they're enjoying themselves anyway. You know, you're right. There are lots of scenes set in the clubs, but during the day. Mm. And if you've ever been in a nightclub during the day... Oh, no, it's a different... Well, they're rather sort of tawdry and tragic, aren't yeah, they? There's something... It's, it is behind the scenes. I remember we used to... I used to live in Stonegate when I was a child and there was a pub opposite, the Punch Bowl, which is still there, very old pub. And because my father went into all the shops during the day because they were says, you know, his shopkeeper friends, we'd go across to the Punch Bowl. And I, I can conjure up now... 
the smell of stale beer and cigarettes. And it's a smell I really like. Is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think, and that was so much the morning after, you know, and you just think there's a very, there's two worlds, you know, mm. there's, there's the front that's all glitz and there's the back that's really pretty sooty and grim. And, and it's where those two worlds meet that I think that's always interesting. Now you wear, you do a lot of research, but you wear it very lightly in, in the books. And I know that actually Barbara Cartland's memoir was a book you consulted. It was very good. <laughs> what was it? Yeah. It was very interesting because she was absolutely she had details that I hadn't come across elsewhere so that I, just tiny things you know nothing big but really about you know what she's drinking what she's wearing what she's reading and I think it was a very direct line into someone who was very much part of that um, oh no it's a good read was it really okay well I'm, I'm surprised to get that endorsement um, what's also interesting is that I think is it set just before the general strike yes yeah right on the cusp of it but yes. no one seems particularly no, concerned. they're not. I don't no. think they were. <laughs> no. I think there's, there's such a divide between the working man and, you know, those people in London who, who that I think people don't want to know. People didn't want to know. And that's just, you know, they're far too busy enjoying themselves or making money or, you know, taking drugs to actually be bothered about the politics of the, of the time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And we're talking this afternoon to the novelist Kate Atkinson. Now, she's written a great deal about the impact of the Second World War. And I asked her if she thinks there'll ever be a time when Britain stops looking to that conflict. I do wonder. I I do wonder because I'm in the middle of writing a book that's set in 1951, which is the year I was born. I realise I'm obsessed by 1951. And people are not really talking about the war but the war is still I mean it's only six years since the, mm. the war finished and I do think one of the characters does say we are going to stop talking about this war and then you know that's in 1951 and I think I think once my generation goes because I was born just after the war so it's still a, a vibrant kind of thing in you know in my hinterland as it were I think once my generation goes I think that's probably when we stop talking I think and will writers stop writing do you no, think no, 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 because it's such a rich source of 
material because that's what you're always looking for, isn't it? You're looking for you're looking for material. But what happens with your books is that you can't. Well, I can't depend on them because I don't. I never quite know where you're going to take me, mm. and I never quite know who to trust. Not me. Well, no, I don't trust you as far as I can throw you. Um, is is that your intention to keep? Because I, I, these, I, I know that probably other writers have, frankly, sold more books than you. Mm. But is that possibly because you are simply a bit tricksier, and that can make it harder to sell books? Oh, I don't know. You'd have to ask my publisher. Um, I don't think of myself as being particularly tricksy, but I am aware that there is a tricksy element in there. But it's me that's being kept interested by those tricks, I think. Because when you're writing, in order to engage with what you're writing, you have to be entertaining yourself, I think. You have to be... I often do think, oh, where am I taking this? Because I have an end point I know I want to get to and mm. I don't know how to get there and I don't know who might possibly die, for example, in the course of me getting to that point. You really don't know? No. No. So you take yourself by surprise every time? I do, and yeah. I think that's quite important to have those surprises in there for me as a writer because otherwise, you know, you're just working from, I don't know, a wall chart, you know, from a... A, a structure that's going to keep you might keep you on the right path but it's not going to be particularly inventive I like inventive writing mm. that's why I'm wondering if I would like actually reading my own writing because I like writing inventively I'm not sure I like reading it so you wouldn't be a Kate Atkinson reader. I think we've established that, actually. That's all very <laughs> peculiar. Um, so your collection of short stories, uh, Normal Rules Don't Apply. Mm. Again, you're up to your old tricks because mm. I never quite know what's going to happen next. Oh, that's a very tricksy set of stories. Yes, yes. It, no, it really is. And I also just want to talk about the importance of York in your writing because mm. you, you went to Dundee University, didn't I you? Did, and yes. York is hugely significant. And you're not, although Shrines of Gaiety is set in Soho, you're not London mad, are you? Not everything well, you do has a London twist no, to it. No, I mean, I'm just trying to remember the first time I came to London. Oh, it was eight on holiday, but that was a strange visit. I uh, I live in Edinburgh, so, you know, I'm pretty much as far away as you can get. Mm. And it doesn't have the same resonance as a capital city as, as London does. I'm, I'm from Yorkshire. We can't help it. We just think it's the best place so that it's, you know, it's the Texas of England. It's, it's the biggest Texas. county and we're the most patriotic people. And I miss it every day, I think. I have a kind of a, an innate homesickness about not living in Yorkshire, but I quite possibly wouldn't like to if I actually went back. But I think I try to bring it into books quite a lot, quite, you know, not necessarily it needs to be there, but I like to have... A character who knows Yorkshire or York or, you know, who just comes from there. Yeah, no, well, it, it is. It, it's a lovely recurring theme. I like mm, it. Okay. Um, in your short stories, Princess Anne makes a number of appearances. She does, doesn't she? <laughs> she doesn't have a lot of luck, I should say. But, she's, um, does she, I think she survives the apocalypse, doesn't she? Oh, no, I no. think maybe she's taken out by she's, the apocalypse. She's yeah, taken yes, out by yeah, the apocalypse yeah, very early on, yeah. and so is the Prime Minister. <laughs> and uh, the Prime Minister is replaced by the Deputy Prime Minister, mm. um, who you describe as sounding like a supermarket manager when she makes her first statement <laughs> after the apocalypse. Um, I'm afraid it's not as funny as it would have been a couple of years ago, Kate, um, because uh, this is in your short stories. Uh, this is called The Void, this yeah, particular yeah. apocalypse. Um, where does it spring from, that scenario? Oh, I think, well, my last collection of stories was called Not the End of the World. Uh, I think it's uh, just that is a recurrent theme. It's just the total wipeout of, of everybody. Um, again, rich source of material. Let's not let's forget that. But I think, I think there's a... 
Well, I think there's probably just a darkness in me, actually, and always has been since I was very, very young. Um, I mean, you do you describe a small girl, the young Kate, as perhaps somewhat introspective and... Oh, well, I was an only child. Yes, I was yes. an only child. I learned to read quite early on and I, I read everything. So that's an extremely introverted way to conduct your childhood, I think. I would be a, a completely different person if I'd had a sibling. I mean, everyone I know who I say I long to have a sibling, they say it's not what it's all or what it's cut out to be. But that's not really the point, is it? It's, it socialises you. It brings you up against, you know, adversity, I think, having a sibling, as well as companionship. You know, you, you fall lucky with whatever sibling you get. But I feel I would be a very different person because I was basically stranded alone with my parents who didn't like each other. So that there's always that sense of of a kind of lack of... Emotional comfort, I think, that you've tried. It just to... comes from having a kind of a, a setting that's more is more inclined to be looking at you. I think, and I don't know. I don't. My parents weren't happy, and I think that has a big effect on a child. I think because they stayed together. So I was about to ask. They did stay together. Yes, relentlessly, grimly. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, people. I know divorce can be painful, but. Sometimes. Well, my mother was already divorced. She'd had, she'd had a mysterious marriage during the war that, that nobody would ever talk about. And she refused to have him back when he came back from the war. So mm. she did say to me once, I was divorced, you know, I've been divorced once, I couldn't get divorced again. I couldn't leave someone again. So I think perhaps, you know, the sense of shame from the first divorce possibly you know, was one of the things that kept her there. Did they did they enjoy your success as a writer? Were they able to? My father died the week before I won the whip read. Oh, and he'd already become very mentally um, confused, so he didn't know any of that. And he's the person who would have appreciated it because he was self-taught. He was an autodidact, came from a very poor, very unfortunate background, and he taught himself. He read books, you know, he used to get the Reader's Digest um, condensed books, uh, and he went to classical concerts. Uh, I mean, nobody in Doncaster of his, you know, a boy who came from the pit was going to classical concerts. So he he would have really appreciated it. My mother, not, not so much. <laughs> I remember when I was given the MBE, I, was, I told her, she said, why you? And I think that sort of... <laughs> Well, my mother up. That's northern parenting for <laughs> that you, That is northern, but it's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but fair. Um, OK, I mean, I, I also just need to make clear, because I am a big fan of yours, as I hope has, has come across, but um, there's humour here. There's a lot of mm. sometimes sly, rather wicked humour. And there's a short story in your latest collection about a, a middle-aged woman who goes online dating. And <laughs> and some of the blokes, um, there are a lot of them on the, the online dating sites and apps are wearing headgear. Um <laughs> <laughs> to suggest they're rock climbers or adventurers in some way. And she's often very bitterly let down by them. I know, because once they take their headgear off, they all prove to be bored. So. <laughs> the wonderful Kate Atkinson. Such a pleasure to meet her. She's in her, I think she's in her late 60s, possibly early 70s, V. And um, she's just, I think she's she's a genius. And she just doesn't, she seems very sort of uh, measured. And yeah, she likes writing, but she just, doesn't take herself all that seriously. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I would agree. I was so surprised when I read her first Jackson Brody uh, crime novel that she was the same person who wrote all the other novels that I'd read. And I don't, I can't really think of another writer who has managed to straddle both those genres quite so well. Mm. Can you? No, I don't. I don't think anyone has won 
prizes and achieve. I mean, I mean, she's also had uh, Jackson Brody's been on television, um, hasn't he? And Life After Life, which was her novel, was televised by the BBC as well. And so many of her books are about death, frankly, and about people dying. And I, I just, I think she's such, such a clever woman, but also has a wonderful sense of humour as well. And the stuff about the, the men on the dating apps that Pamela comes across in that short story in her latest collection is is kind of an illustration of just how acerbic and funny she can be. But also, honestly, Fee, the stuff about the nightclubs in Soho back in the 20s, there were all kinds, not just drugs, but um, all kinds of sexual persuasions were catered for in the clubs of Soho 100 years ago. And also, the arist- aristocratic circles quite often had these, I think they're, what are they call baby parties, where grown adults would go dressed as babies in romper suits and be wheeled along in perambulators, as they were called at the time. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. There really isn't. Well, wasn't Cynthia Payne part of her pleasure parlour was given over to exactly that kind of... Oh, was it? Was it? Yes, yeah, I think you're right. In, yeah, men in nappies kind of oh, fetish. So, yeah, there's nothing new on the planet, Jane. Yeah. So there's I'm going to tell that to my to my youngsters. You think you're raving and you're raving for the first time? No, it's all been done before by your great-great-granny, so stick it. Uh, not that any of my great-great-grandmothers, I suspect, were into dressing up as babies in giant romper suits, but you never know. Right, um, we reserve... What do we reserve? The right to let everybody just be, Fee, I think. I think we do. I think I'm pretty sure that a producer from Who Do You Think You Are will be in touch instantly after you've said that. <laughs> um, have a lovely couple of days and uh, look after yourself and see you next week. Yes, and obviously I hope that the depletion doesn't turn into something more serious. Uh, so have a lovely weekend yourself and uh, thank you everybody for listening. It is Jane and Fee at Times.radio. Yes, thank you very much for your company. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, lady. A lady listener. I'm sorry. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com